We live in a world of pain. A world that is characterized by, well, suffering. If you were going to pick one element of the human experience that is common across nations, cultures, history, you'd have to pick suffering. Our life seems to be one constant struggle as we battle day to day to day against the forces that are arrayed against us. Our our world, our lives are full of sadness and of horror. I, I, I find myself often recoiling from the worst of it. I mean, we live in an age where we get to see the worst of it. In previous ages, it was only those who went to war that saw the outcome of war, whereas these days you turn on the TV and you're going to see pictures of the dead following a bombing or the ones that really unman me, the ones that I can't bear to look at are the ones that involve children. There was that famous photo that did the rounds a few years ago of the the refugee man washed up ashore with his toddler next to him. And I, I just... But even for the best of us, even for those whose lives are seemingly good, who've kind of got it together, the the Aussie, middle class, wealthy, from a family that's intact and stable and themselves are well behaved and have, even for those people, life is still marked by moments of pain. Now I don't think I need to convince you of this. If you're sitting there right now thinking to yourself, well, that's not really my life, it's likely that it will come. That there will be times in your life where you will know the pain, the suffering that is universal to humanity. But it poses a dilemma. It raises a difficulty. You see, given that is the world that we live in, given that our universal experience of life is one of suffering, How could it be that the God of the Bible is truly God? If God is a being who is all-powerful and full of all knowledge and is perfectly good, how could it be that our lives are marked by such suffering? It certainly seems the case that either God is not real at all or at best He is two out of those three things, powerful, knowing, good. Maybe he's powerful and good but doesn't know what solution to come to. Maybe he has a solution and he wants to do it but he hasn't the power to bring it about. Maybe he has the power and he can see the plan but he's not good, he's capricious or at worst evil and revels in our suffering. Our reality often feels like the outcome of a cruel or a capricious God, not a merciful one. What does the Bible have to say to this dilemma? Really, that's the question that I want to engage with in the next short while. I want to engage with it in its strongest form, that particular dilemma, because I think the Bible has real answers. They're, They're complicated, because it's a complicated question, but very real answers. Now, I'm conscious as we engage with this question that there might well be two different groups of people who are watching, who are thinking, who are listening. In the first group, we might well have people for whom suffering is very raw, very present. 
Perhaps right now you yourself are going through one of those periods of intense pain where life really is very difficult. Or perhaps you've been recently exposed to someone else's great suffering. Now if that's you, I really hope that in what you find in what I have to say today is hope. That there is in fact a purpose, a meaning and an end to the suffering of this life. Something better still to come. But on the other hand, there may well be some people for whom this isn't so much necessarily an immediate, present and raw question, but more of an intellectual one. It's a poser, it's a philosophical conundrum. How can it be in a world of suffering that God is powerful, knowledgeable and good? Now, if that's you, my aim is to provide you with really what I consider to be a very robust explanation. But also, I want to trouble you a little bit. I want you to ask questions of your view of the world not just the Christian view, but more on that as we go through it. There are two main questions we need to deal with. Firstly, why is there suffering at all? And secondly, why hasn't God done something about it? Why is there suffering at all? And why hasn't God done something about it? Let's deal with those in turn. The first question then, why is there suffering at all? And I think the Bible has four reasons as to why suffering exists. These are kind of all together. You take it as a whole picture. Four reasons why suffering, why there is suffering at all in the world. And all four of them are familiar to us. All four of them exist in our daily lives. They're not strange and esoteric reasons but it's worth recognising that they apply under God's world. So here's the first one then. Suffering as a consequence of sin. Suffering as a direct consequence of individual men and women and children living in rebellion to God and therefore living in ways that are wicked, that are evil, that are harmful. There's lots of lots of suffering in our world that are a direct consequence of wicked people. Now, you you can find it all through the Bible. There's lots of different passages that speak of it. One in particular that stood out to me was from the book of Micah, chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. There there are wicked people out there who plan evil and then execute evil and suffering results because of it. Or perhaps as uh, the saying goes these days, haters going to hate. They're just the nature of the world, the nature of people. Right back at the very start of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter from what we had read for us, the thing that happens next is a man murders his own brother out of jealousy. Why is there suffering in the world? Well, it's a consequence of sin. There are some truly horrendous people in the world. Again, you turn on the news. You will hear of people trafficking children or stealing women away from their families to sell them into slavery. We, we hear of drug lords. and There are some truly horrendous people 
who cause an incredible amount of suffering. But it's worth remembering this. It's not just bad people who add to the suffering in the world. It's very easy to think of someone out there as being the bad person. We need to recognise the reality that you and I, that we all contribute to the suffering in the world. Now, we like to think that morality, it's like scales. You, you, you do good or you do bad, and as long as you do enough good, then the bad is okay. So, so you can think of yourself as a good person because most of your life is spent being okay, and occasionally you do some bad things, but because most of your life is spent being okay, therefore, you are a good person. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. Morality is not a zero-sum game. It's not you get ten good, nine bad, you're one positive, the world is a better place. That's not true. Because whatever bad we do, whatever evil, whatever wickedness, whatever harm we cause to others remains. If I were to somehow be able to reach through this this screen and punch you in the face like really hard, right? Like the, the sort of punch that's going to break something in your face and it's probably going to break something in my hand, if I were to somehow be able to do that and then go out and feed a thousand homeless people and help 20 grannies cross the road and give money to the poor in Africa and your face would still hurt. So would my hand for that matter. The suffering that my wickedness has brought into the world is not undone by me doing other good things. From the smallest lie to the biggest fraud and whatever else it is that we might do, you and I contribute to the suffering in the world. That's no surprise, is it? As a race we heard in our, in our series just recently, we, we have rebelled against God, we have rejected, that is sin. We have gone each one to his own way. And what happens when you turn your back on the source of life and light and love, on the source of goodness, but of course what is left is darkness and death and hatred. Of course what is left is suffering. You and I are contributors. We add darkness and hatred and death. Why is there suffering in the world? Well, suffering exists as a direct consequence of our sin. But hang on, you say, okay, that's, that's sure, that makes perfect sense when it comes to suffering that is directly caused by people, but there's plenty of suffering that isn't. I mean, what about, I'm just walking along the road and I trip over and I fall and I break my leg. I mean, that, that wasn't caused by anyone's sin. What about suffering that just happens by circumstances? Something happened over there and therefore I had to lose my job and now I'm... Well, the second reason the Bible says for the existence of suffering is that suffering comes as a judgment from God upon our evil. Let me flesh that out. You see, our, our wickedness, let's just call it what it is, right? We, we might call it a little white lie, but it is wickedness. Our wickedness results in hurting others. And God gives us over to what we want. We want a life without God? Well, sure, he says, you can have that. You want a life without the life and the love and the light that I bring? Well, you can have that. 
But it goes beyond that. God doesn't just give us what we want. God rightly enacts judgment upon us. Wickedness deserves to be punished. Again, Genesis chapter 3, that passage that was read for us a little bit before, it just captures it so, well, simply really, so perfectly. There you see humanity, a man and a woman, rebelling against God, ignoring his word, rejecting his command, disobeying him and choosing their own way instead. That's the nature of sin, is to become your own little God. I will define morality, I will define what is right and wrong and I will reject what God has said. And as a consequence of that, God brought judgment. If you rebel against God, of course you ought to expect punishment. The very things that humanity were created for now became burdensome. Working the land, bearing children, relationships with each other and with God, cast out of the garden into a place that it was hard to live in. And so our life in this world is hard. Now, this second reason doesn't have quite as direct a link as the first reason. The first reason it's easy to see, right? Someone lies to me, that hurts me. There's suffering. I lie to someone else, actually that hurts me too. There's suffering. This second one isn't directly related. You sin, therefore you fell over and broke your leg. It's not quite so direct. Sometimes it can be. Okay, the Bible does have many examples where there was a particular individual who because of their flagrant rebellion against God in a particular way suffered something very specific. It can happen and it's worth stopping to reflect upon for ourselves. But other times and usually this is just the general reality that we live in a world under judgment. We live in a world that has been subjected to futility because of our wickedness. Now, you might well ask, well, hang on a second, David. Are we really that bad? I mean, the the, the punishment really seems inappropriately harsh. You know, the individual who didn't really do anything that badly, who suffers catastrophic events in their lives, isn't God a little bit overbearing? Now, it really depends... what equation you think is happening here, what the bad is and what the punishment ought to be. You see, if the equation is the bad things we have done in our lives against the suffering that we experience, then yes, actually, it might seem very lopsided. Uh, Someone who's gone through their life as a pretty nice kind of person, done all right, you know, a few little bad things, but who suffers tremendously through really no fault of their own, right? Cancer takes their loved ones and disastrous events occur to them themselves. It's entirely, yes, that, that could seem unbalanced. But that's not quite the right equation. See, the equation isn't what are the few little bad things that we've done in our lives. On this side of the equation is treason. On this side of the equation isn't whether you've told a lie or the truth once or twice in your life. On this side of the equation is, have you rebelled against the ruler of reality? It's a much more serious thing than just, have you done some bad things? In fact, whether you've done bad things or not is irrelevant. If you are somebody who has overthrown the Lord of all and placed yourself on his throne, 
In fact, on this side ought to be death. Judgment with eternal consequences. For we have rebelled against the one who is eternal himself. That we are still alive at all, that we receive anything good from God's hand, is a tremendous mercy. No, in fact, the punishment doesn't outweigh the crime. It isn't inappropriately harsh. It is strangely merciful that God would continue to be patient with individuals who every single one of us have all done the single worst thing possible. If you ever think of a murderer as worse than you, or a pedophile as worse than you, or an abusive priest as worse than you, then you've misunderstood the nature of sin. Because what every single one of us has done is the single worst thing, rebelled against the rightful ruler. Are we really that bad? Yes, we are. The mercy of God is that we would have anything good at all. Why is there suffering in the world? Is there suffering as a direct consequence of our rebellion against God and our actions as a result? There's suffering in the world because it's God's judgment upon us. Strangely merciful. Because if the full judgment were to fall on us, we wouldn't even be talking. But hang on a second, because what about Christians then? If suffering comes as the judgment from God upon sinners, aren't Christians supposed to be forgiven? Aren't Christians supposed to be people who no longer have their sin counted against them because of what Jesus has done? Why do they still suffer? Well, that brings us to our third reason the Bible says why suffering exists. And that is suffering as discipline. Suffering as discipline. It's very true that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The the punishment, the judgment for sin has entirely been paid. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. But what God is doing with his people, with Christians, specifically followers of Jesus, is training us, is disciplining us, is turning us into something better. It's there in in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. I'm reading from Hebrews 12 and verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you who are without discipline, which all receive, but if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us. We respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit, that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful later on. However, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Again, this is something daily to us, familiar to us, something that we well know. I I teach my children, I discipline my children. Discipline is different to punishment. 
It's the picture of the rod for the plant to grow up. You want it to grow straight. You want it to grow right. And so you train it. It has positive aspects to it, right? I teach my children, use your manners, be kind, use your strength for good, not for evil, right? It's a positive teaching. It has negative aspects to it. There are consequences to action, right? Don't hit your sister. Okay, you hit your sister, I'm going to take away your wooden sword, send you to your bedroom. When you come back, you need to apologize, restore, right? Discipline is painful, but by its very nature, we are trying to straighten crooked things. All discipline causes pain, whether you're someone who smacks a child or someone who just has time out. Both of those are going to cause a degree of pain to that child. Discipline hurts. We we do it imperfectly. As fathers, as mothers, as parents, we, we discipline our children and we're not particularly good at it. We do it as seems best as we muddle along in our own sinfulness and our own lack of knowledge and power, but we accept that it's a good thing, how much more we accept it from God, who does it perfectly, who we know is for us, who we know beyond a shadow of a doubt loves us and wants good for us. We'll come to that in a moment, how I know that that's true. But you might say, well, hang on, discipline and judgment, they both produce suffering, so what's the difference? What's the point? What? Well, the end result is completely different. Discipline out of love is seeking good for the other person. Punishment, usually out of anger, is just seeking to set the scales right, to restore the balance. It doesn't produce trust. It produces fear. Now, you see, Christians, strangely, we we get our own unique form of suffering, actually. It's not that we get less suffering than others. In fact, in some ways, we get even more. We get to suffer for being Christian. We get to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Knowing that what God is doing in us is, well, that we might share his character, his holiness, making us more like his. Patient, long-suffering, hopeful, enduring, trusting. So suffering exists as a consequence of our sin. Suffering exists as a judgment from God upon evil. Suffering exists as discipline upon God's children. But none of those really address the underlying question. Why does suffering exist at all? Why has God created the world this way? And so we come to the fourth answer, and that is suffering for great gain. Suffering for glory. You see, many of the best things in life, the the most glorious, the grandest, the greatest things that we could ever achieve, only come through pain, only come through turmoil, only come through dedication and, dare I say it, suffering. It was in that second passage we had read for us in Romans chapter 8. Let me read it again. I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. The whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. But we ourselves, who have the spirit of the first fruits, also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. 
again, just one passage. I mean, really, the answer to that question is the entirety of the Bible. God is making something new. God is making something grander. God is making something better. God is taking us from one place to a better place. And the path there is a path through the cross, is a path through suffering. It's, it's familiar to us. I mean, you, can, you can pick any number of different examples. We, we do this physically to ourselves, right? If you're going to go and run a marathon, you will have to endure extreme suffering to get there, right? The, the training required, the discipline required, the sacrifice required. You are physically going to have to damage your body in order for it to come back stronger and be able to run the 42 kilometers or whatever it is, right? I had, had some friends who... Uh, with fitness freaks, they used to run ultra marathons, which is a hundred kilometers. They used to do Ironman triathlons, right? They, these, these are in, incredible feats of human performance. And the training for them was commensurate. I mean, it, it was, if I start to describe the impacts upon their digestive system, upon, it, it was pretty brutal what they'd have to put themselves through. Why would you put yourself through that kind of suffering? Well, because of the outcome. We do it emotionally to ourselves, right? Come from a messed up family, got to go get some counselling to help me work out and work through some issues. It's going to hurt. It's going to bring up past issues. It's going to make me uncomfortable right now. Why would I do it? Well, for the outcome. We do it with our finances. I'm going to scrimp and save. I'm going to deny myself pleasures. Now I'm going to suffer right now because I want the thing at the end, the, the, the retirement, the house, or whatever it might be. I mean, we see it in childbirth. There's the, the illustration that's in here. Right? The suffering that comes before the glorious moment. And childbirth, I tell you what, just from day one, right, the suffering begins. The, the body starts to change, it swells and grows, and puts on weight, and, and you know, all, th- all sorts of things start to change. The, the sleep goes out the window. I mean, it's bizarre. You don't have to wait the nine months for the baby to come. You just start sleeping badly straight away, up in the middle of the night, peeing. The, the hormones are doing all sorts of things through your body. And that's just the husband, by the way. I mean, I, what it does to the wife, incredible. Why? for the glory of the child at the end. It happens with armies and war. I mean, this is an interesting example because you think of the person who dedicates themselves to the military to go and, and fight these battles and maybe even die, sacrifice themselves, really for no gain directly to themselves even, for something grand and something glorious. God is doing that with his creation. And God's plan is not a mystery. This isn't some, well, I don't know what God's doing. It's esoteric and unknowable. God has told us his plan. That he is taking his creation from where it was to somewhere that is undescribable. It's incredible. I mean, there's many aspects to it and more that we've got time to talk about right now. But just one of them gets picked up in this passage, right, as we await our adoption as sons. That we get to become God's children. I mean, (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it in a way that's going to convey the miracle that that is. We are a creation. We are separate. We are nothing. And God is taking us on this journey to include us into himself, to give us of who he is. It is astonishing. It is beautiful. It is marvellous. Why is there suffering in our world? Well, there is suffering because it is a consequence of our sin. It is God's judgment upon our wickedness. It is discipline for God's children. And God is achieving something glorious through it. 
But we've got a kind of second question then. Well, why hasn't God done something? If God has got a plan and he's going somewhere, okay, but why hasn't he done something? Isn't he good? Doesn't he want suffering to end? Now, as we come to that question, I want, if I may, start with asking you a question. And that is, what would you have God do? If you're looking at the world and you're questioning God, why haven't you done something? If you, I take it you therefore think that God's plan is not good enough. That perhaps you have an alternative. What would you have God do? What would you expect a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good? What would you expect that God to do? Now, you may have never thought about it. I hope you have, if this is your question. You've got the, the integrity to reflect upon it and think, okay, here's a better alternative. Although, can I politely point something out to you? That if you do have something that you would expect God to do, you have, you've got a, a better solution, can I point out that you are not all-powerful and all-knowing and perfectly good? So whatever solution you have come up with, you ought to be deeply suspicious of. If you are questioning God and God's solution because you don't think that maybe he's powerful or good or knowing, you know for a fact that you aren't. So why do you think your solution is better than God's? Now the Bible says God is doing something. God could have left us in all fairness and rightness, God could have left us right back at Genesis chapter 3. The Bible could have ended at Genesis 3 and it would perfectly explain the world as we know it. A world full of sin and hatred and suffering. A world under the judgment of God. The end. That could have been it. But no, God is doing something marvellous. And he's doing something marvellous because of his character. Now, I want to address for a moment that, that our opening dilemma. If God is all-powerful and all-knowledgeable and perfectly good, how come there's suffering in the world? And I want to pick up on the third of those, perfectly good. I purposefully chose that word good. Sometimes the question can be asked, if God is all-powerful and all-knowledgeable and merciful, then how come there is suffering in the world? But that doesn't quite pick up God's character. God is good. And goodness has Two aspects to it. Mercy is most definitely one of them, but we must have the other, which is just. Goodness requires justice as well as room for mercy. Now, if you want to find out more about that and explore that idea further, go back and listen to talk three from the series. You see, God, God can't just sweep evil under the rug. If your solution was, why don't God just wave the magic wand and make it all disappear, that would require God to simply ignore wickedness. To say, well, it's okay, it doesn't matter, no justice, no consequences, no condemnation for rebellion against him. Remember the worst possible thing to do? Ah, let's just get rid of it. I mean, we have a word for people who do that. We call people who do that corrupt. If a government would simply say, ah, don't worry about it, just sweep it all away, no justice, we'd be up in arms. God can't do that. You remember, God has set creation on a trajectory, on a pathway to something better, a trajectory to include humanity into himself. 
a trajectory to adopt us as his sons, a trajectory to live in us by his spirit. It's an incredible thing. A trajectory, actually in the end, that's not all about us. It's in fact all about him, for his character to be displayed, for him to rightly be glorified. Why hasn't God done something? He has. He has done the exact thing necessary for the world as it is to be able to become the world he would have it be. And he's done it all at the cross of Jesus. That one moment in time when justice and mercy coincide perfectly. A moment when God could punish sin rightly and fully and yet still offer true forgiveness and mercy. That one moment that above all else tells us God is good. In fact, it's one moment that above all else tells us that God is for us. Just a little bit later in that same chapter in Romans 8, the writer says this, he says, God did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? How is it that we face the discipline of God knowing that it's for our good? Because God's already given us his son. And in that we know his love is real. See, Jesus gives us this real tangible hope that what God is doing is worth it. That what God is doing is real and deep and profound. God could end it now. God could say, that's it, Jesus, come back and bring it to an end. What would that do? I mean, what happens if you cut your training short and you get to the marathon and you can't even finish it? What happens if you go to the counselling and week one you go, eh, you know what, we brought up a bunch of issues, but ah, that's fine, doesn't matter. And the scars remain not only for you but for generations to come. In childbirth, you bring the baby out early, and maybe it survives. The end is not glorious. We trust God's plan that what He is doing will bring His creation to the point of glory. Why hasn't God done something? He has. He is doing it even now. His answer is found in Jesus. The answer of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God was to give of himself that we, his creation, might have some hope of a life with him, of a life where the suffering is truly done away with. Now, I want to finish with three reflections for you. There's a lot in there. There's a whole lot in there, and I hope you've already been thinking hard at it. But I've got three reflections for us. Number one is this. Whatever your view of the world, it needs to take into account for those two questions. Maybe you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and I'm really glad you've engaged with this content. But I want you to be honest with yourself about your view of the world. Why is there suffering? And what hope is there for the future? Now, as I've wrestled with these questions throughout the last little while, I've I've tried to put myself into the shoes of different ways of viewing the world, and I can't find any that give 
quite as good, quite as satisfying an answer to both those questions as the Christian faith does. They, they all seem to at best have a good answer to one of them, but that's always at the expense of the other. You can live with an idea of why there's suffering, but no hope for the future, or with some hope of the future, but it doesn't take into account where suffering comes from in the first place. What's your view? Secondly, I've heard it said sometimes that this particular question and and the suffering of the world drives people away from Christianity. That actually it's it's a railing against God that turns people off the faith. And I want to tell you that's not true. I know of and I've met many people for whom those moments of suffering were exactly the times when they found faith. When they needed something that would make sense of the world and a hope that was more than just wishful thinking. And they found it in Jesus. They found great comfort for today and a very bright hope for tomorrow. And so thirdly then, can I invite you to come to Jesus? I don't make this invitation lightly. I recognise it's a big call. But I want to invite you to come and to find in him something that is so much greater than you will find anywhere else. Whether this is an intellectual problem for you, whether you are right now in the midst of suffering, you will find in the Lord Jesus a comfort and a hope that you will find nowhere else. Would you come to Jesus? I'm going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill us with trust, that we would recognise in the death of Jesus, that moment in which you gave your Son, that we would recognise in that the display of your character, that you truly are good, just and merciful. And so would we entrust ourselves to you. Father, there are times when we can't see what it is that you are doing, just as a child often doesn't understand the discipline of their parent. And yet we trust you that you are doing it for good. We ask that you would work in the lives of Christians to keep being patient, to keep growing as your children. And Father, please, for those who are watching who haven't yet trusted Jesus, would you please help them to see this is true and real and comforting. Amen.